Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Wine legend Stephen Spurrier dies. U.S. tariffs on scotch suspended. The British drink more spirits than wine in 2020 for the first time ever. And as ever, our wine of the week. So once again, we'll start with our week in wine, or weeks in wine, we should say, this week, since it has been two weeks. Um, we missed last week, and why was that, Matthew? Well, I believe it was your fault, technically, Katie. You made a sudden um, withdrawal from Petaluma. Yes, that's true. Uh, I found myself in Palm Springs, surprisingly enough, last week, uh, sort of a last-minute trip uh, for a niece's birthday, and it was fascinating. I've never been to Palm Springs, kind of right there in the desert um, on the edge of Joshua Tree, which is a a famed national park here in California. Uh, Very beautiful. And the city itself is, um, well, I wouldn't call it a city, I guess. I suppose it's a town. When I walked off the plane and into the airport, I almost felt like I was in Hollywood. Well, I have to say I assumed it was in Hollywood. I'm not actually completely sure where it is, but it does sound like Hollywood. Well, I had no expectations, but I was very impressed with the food and drink scene. Uh, We ate at a couple of different places, uh, of course, all outdoor dining, um, social distancing, all of that. But it was a fantastic experience, and I didn't realize there was such culinary delights to be had there. Um, I will definitely be returning at some point to discover some of the other restaurants I didn't get to check out because I was only there for about 36 hours. Well, just briefly, um, as you said, still all outdoor dining and palms springs but in napa they have opened up uh, just on monday in fact and some limited indoor dining at 25 percent capacity and tasting rooms are able to be indoors as well um, again but with food only you can't just have a glass of wine um, on its own and it's really ironic i'm not sure if we commented on this before that for the last 20 30 years napa wineries have been um, really clamoring to be allowed to serve food and to be restaurants and napa's never allowed them all of a sudden it's the only way they can stay open quite the irony i think And so I did get to enjoy a drink at the Oxbow, although I was sat outside because I was with my dog and with a friend. There's still a lot of confusion among the visitors about what they could do and couldn't do, and the staff had to keep ushering them into the correct place. But still, the potential to uh, be inside, especially as it's been raining this week, is exciting and um, optimistic. And it was quite a busy week because aside from the trip to Palm Springs, uh, I was also interviewed for a podcast. So got to switch roles there. Instead of being the host, uh, I was the guest. And along with my colleague, Rebecca Johnson, and we were talking about uh, Batonage Forum, the women in wine event that we are organizing uh, these for these past two years. And it was hosted by X Chateau. So this is a podcast by Robert Vernick, uh, who you did the WSET diploma course with, right, Matthew? That is correct, Katie. And Peter Young. And they both, um, it's a great podcast. If you haven't checked it out, you should. If you are a wine student, wine enthusiast, wine professional, uh, it's all about the business of wine. So they were uh, focused on uh, these organizations that are uh, focused on diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity. And so Batonage Forum was featured. And so you can check that out if you, you can find them on Instagram at x underscore chateau. Um, they're really fun and they've got lots of episodes to check out. And just a quick plug for my own podcast, Matthew's World of Wine and Drink. Uh, the latest release is on Grenache, one of my favourite grape varieties. 
And finally, on Tuesday afternoon, we did a cava tasting um, because Katie is helping represent the cava industry here in the US. Press release dropped this morning. I'm sure you all read it. Just a brief overview because we're going to do cava as our wine of the week, one of the, our favourite wines of the tasting. But it was um, a lot of fun. We had five different cavas, three whites and two rosés. And just and also a presentation on um, the history of cava and the history of Catalonia, which I thought was very interesting. It was, and this little education session was actually hosted by a friend and colleague, Ava Bertrand. And she had worked for many years with Gloria Ferrer, which is part of Freshenet, one of Cava's largest producers. And here's a fun fact that I learned about Ava following the tasting, is that she is a Cava confrère since 2009, which is essentially Cava royalty. Should that not be concert? Seeing as she's female and it sounds more like connoisseur. Oh no, there were all white men around her in the photo. She was the only woman. Well, good for her. She's certainly very knowledgeable and explained all all the information very well. And I'm beginning to slowly change my mind about Cava. We'll talk about more about that in our Wine of the Week at the end of the pod. But now, on with the news. We begin with some sad news. Uh, This week, on Tuesday, wine legend Stephen Spurrier has died, just short of his 80th birthday. Spurrier was, of course, most famous for organizing the so-called Judgment of Paris in 1976, which transformed the image of both French and California wines. His career started as a trainee at a wine shop in 1964, Christopher & Co. Uh, He then set up his own wine shop in Paris in 1971, the Cave de la Madeleine, followed by France's first private wine school, l'Académie du Vin. It was there that he hosted an informal tasting to compare French and California wines, five Chardonnays and Cabernets from each country. To the consternation of the distinguished French judges invited to the meeting, uh, which included Aubert de Villene of Domaine de la Romaine Conti, a Chardonnay and a Cabernet from California won. Although this was not a formal competition, California's reputation as a serious wine producer had been made. Spurrier went on to write for Decanter and to work as an educator. Most recently, he established his own winery, Bride Valley, in Dorset, to make sparkling English wine, a project he called the last throw of the Spurrier wine dice. The winery is now well established in England's growing scene. One of the most popular and respected wine industry figures, tributes poured in from friends and colleagues. Well, there certainly have been some very warm tributes. He was clearly deeply loved as well as admired in the wine industry. One could say you could make a film about um, Stephen Spurrier and the Judgment of Paris. At least he could make a good one, because the bottle shock was terrible, and he was very, very dismissive of that film. In fact, he said there's not, not a true word spoken in it. And um, the Judgment of Paris is something that has been kind of overblown and misinterpreted not least in that film, but in other books about it as well. And um, here in California, it's trumpeted as being a bit more significant than it really was, because it really was just a bunch of uh, wine industry insiders getting together and tasting some wine, and just to see if California wine was as good as um, people were saying. But do you think that would make Hollywood? It certainly would not, but it would be the truth. (laughs) Well, I for one would sign up to see something like that. Maybe a a documentary-esque format would, uh, would fit the bill. 
Yeah, and it's really exciting that he finished his wine career with um, the Sparkling Wine Project in Dorset. I think it showed just how passionate he was about wine and also how knowledgeable he was because he saw that English sparkling wine is the future and being able to establish that winery towards the end of his career and his life, I think really lays a foundation for the next generation. May his legacy live on. Tariffs between the UK and the US have been suspended for four months to allow the two countries to negotiate a conclusion to the aviation dispute which has hit the drinks industry hard, something we've been talking a lot over the last 16 to 18 months. And Scotch industry figures were quick to welcome the news as the tariffs have hurt the whisky business badly. It's estimated that exports of Scottish whisky have fallen by 35% since November 2019 when the tariffs were first imposed, costing the industry half a billion dollars. It's only a temporary reprieve, but a promising one, as both the UK and the US have said that they wanted to work together to fight the threat from Chinese aviation. So this decision came at a time when two major events have happened in politics uh, recently. Uh, One is Brexit, and one is the new US administration. So what do you think, Matt? Do either of these two political events weigh in on this decision? Well, as the listener will know, I'm not a fan of Brexit. But in this instance, the UK has, on its own, negotiated this temporary reprieve. But um, the tariffs still exist on um, EU products. And so it is beneficial for the UK to be able to negotiate in this way, and beneficial to the Scotch industry in particular. Although it's still going to be, I think, a lot of wrangling and quite how the UK kind of maintains a strong position in these negotiations with such a bigger country will remain to be seen. But with the new US administration, I mean, we've been speculating over the last few weeks whether this will make a difference, whether we'll be more open to getting rid of tariffs and having a more positive relationship with their trade partners. And maybe this is an instance that they are more open to um, freer trade deals. Well, and in those discussions, we said that that probably wasn't on the priority list of the Biden administration. However, with this reprieve, these four months to kind of go back to the drawing board, um, what do you think? Do you think there might actually be some change? Well, we have to remember that this has virtually nothing to do with the drinks industry. It's about the aviation industry, which is um, a big one and a powerful one. This U.S. administration realizes that China is a big trade threat and that they need to work with their partners to kind of be strong enough to compete with that threat. And I think that's an indication that uh, Biden and his team realize that and having partnerships is really important. It's really unfortunate the drinks industry just relies on these big decisions which have nothing to do with them. Well, the drinks industry is not the only one. Data analysis firm Kantar have said that in 2020, more spirits were bought in the UK than wine for the first time ever. This follows a rising trend in spirits purchases, though sales perhaps saw unusual growth due to various lockdowns last year. Kantar reported that in 2020, 68% of households purchased spirits compared to 64% in 2019. Aside from the pandemic, sales have risen due to innovation in the sector at-home cocktail making, and increased popularity among young drinkers. Wine, however, has remained steady. It's just that more people are also drinking spirits than ever before. Well, speaking from our own household, I will say there have been more cocktails made in the last year than in the year prior. This is very true. 
And it makes sense. If you can't go out very much, then you've got to do it at home. Do it yourself. Well, that was always the treat, right? When we would go out on the town, we'd go out to a nice restaurant. You treat yourself to a beautiful cocktail before dinner. And if you can't go out and get that pretty little cocktail, then you try to recreate it at home. And it actually is quite fun. Hence why I think we've been drinking quite a few more cocktails than usual. As good as we are at making cocktails, it's still not the same thing as being in a cocktail bar and having a professional mixologist create something really imaginative and unexpected. Are you saying I'm not a professional? I think I've improved over the last few months. Oh, your cocktails are amazing, but then you go into a bar and you're just like, where did you even come up with this recipe? Yes, but this matches trends that we've been talking about for a while, which have been kind of exaggerated by the pandemic, with um, at-home drinking, people buying more spirits, being more experimental as well. And then, of course, the spirits industry is extremely innovative because those brands really have to stand out on the shelf according to packaging, but also according to a different recipe or a different ingredient or just a different take on a classic, which you can't really do in the wine industry to the same extent. And so um, that's what's really been happening in the spirits industry, and it's been reflected by these figures. But it should be emphasised that the wine drinking figures were very stable, so it's not something necessarily for the wine industry to worry about, but the fact that young people are drink are buying more spirits may be of some concern. Tail culture still hasn't trickled into really being a, a food pairing, right? So even though you're making your cocktail at home, maybe before dinner while you're cooking, uh, it's still not something that's going to accompany the meal, I don't think, at least for mainstream consumers. So you're still looking at popping that cork and, you know, pouring a pouring some wine with the meal. It's funny how uh, cocktail trends have changed over the years. It used to be something quite stayed and mainstream that, you know, the middle class dinner parties would have a fancy cocktail. But now it's become something much trendier, much more on point, much more current, much more imaginative and much more exciting. We think we're living in good cocktail times and people are bringing it home. Well, at least we have some good coming out of the pandemic. And now for our wine of the week, which is Katie. Jouvet Camps Millesime 2017 from Cava. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the pod, we had a fun tasting on Tuesday, learning all about Cava. And that's because Katie's helping promote the famous, if sometimes underappreciated, sparkling wine region. We tasted five wines at a range of price points, uh, three whites and two rosés, and the producer Jouvet E. Camps emerged as our favourite particularly the Melazime, 100% Chardonnay vintage wine. Yes, that's right. And we actually, since the tasting was today, we actually have a bottle open. Uh, So very excited to give you a live tasting of our wine of the week. Doesn't usually happen. We usually have the wine kind of earlier in the week, but we've got this open. So sharing some bubbles with you here live. And it was brought back fond memories tasting Juvet Camps because when we worked at Hanging Niche together, uh, back in Manchester, uh, there was always a magnum of Juvia Camps on the shelf, kind of a go-to for the locals because it's good value but extremely good quality. But I haven't actually tried the wines since then. They don't have as strong a presence in the US market, or at least in California, as I think they probably should. Yes, 100% in agreement. Um, I think it is underappreciated, at least here in the US. Um, And of course, it is our job to make sure that um, changes in the near future. And I think it is about just educating the consumer. I I think 
people drink kava and they don't necessarily know that they're drinking kava. Kava is dominated by two giants, uh, Freshenet, which we mentioned earlier on the pod, and Cordonio. There are a lot of good, small family producers making quality wine, uh, which a lot of people don't know, and such as Juve Camps, and they're known for, you know, a fuller style of kava. Yes, and we tasted the Frischnitt Cordon Negro um, to, um, in the tasting as well, which was perfectly decent, a $10 bottle of sparkling wine. And Ava mentioned that a lot of people just don't actually know what it is. You mention the name and they don't recognize it, and then you show them the bottle, they're like, oh, I've had that, that was at my wedding, or um, I've had it lots and lots of times. Well, it does come in a very distinct bottle and packaging. It's all black, and with a black label and gold lettering, so it is memorable. Yes, but it's an example that even a big producer like like Freshnet has trouble kind of marketing its image and getting recognizability. So maybe people recognize the wine once they see it, but not the name so much. But going back to the Juvie Camps Millezime, there is heated debate within Cava, which we discussed today, on whether to stick to the local varieties. Macabeo, the really hard one to pronounce, which is Katie. Charello. Yeah, so the X is like a ch. And then there's a random dot in the middle of the word, which separates the L's. And it makes your computer go mad when you try to type it. I remember the first time I went to Barcelona, we saw um, this random dot in the middle of L's, and my sister and I had a big debate whether that was um, a mistake, or if it was actually supposed to be there, because it was on like, all the metro stops, and it's like, why are they putting a big dot in the middle of the word? But it is Catalan. And then the other grape is Parayeda. Parayeda. Ah, that's because it doesn't have the dot. <laughs> But the other producers work with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and that's become more established over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, but um, that debate is, should you do local varieties or these big international varieties? But Giovetti Camps do both. So we tasted their best-known wine, which is Reserva de la Familia, which is a blend of the local grapes, and it's pretty tasty, and this vintage Chardonnay, which was arguably a bit more balanced and elegant. So really interesting to try one wine by the same producer using indigenous varieties and another wine from Chardonnay. So what did you like about it, Katie? And did you have a preference? Yes, well, this one was my favorite of the lineup, hence why it is our wine of the week. Even smelling it again now, and you know, what we talked about during the tasting is that Cava really does have these earthy aromas, much more so than you'll find in Champagne or you'll find in Francia Corta, uh, and definitely in California. And I always attributed that to the indigenous grape varieties, kind of giving that earthy, earthy aroma. But I'm getting that here in the Chardonnay as well with this. This is 100% Chardonnay um, and it's lovely. It's, it's different. It distinguishes it from Champagne, from Francia Corta, from those other traditional method sparkling wines. But I just think it's absolutely fantastic. And, and the acidity isn't quite as high as you'll get in Champagne, but uh, it makes it very approachable and I think very food friendly. Well, Cava is very different from Champagne and from French Yacotta in terms of climate and in terms of the grape varieties. And even though this is Chardonnay, you're not going to have that really racy acidity and really lean um, style. It is going to be fruitier and a bit more um, expressive, a bit less neutral. But it still has that lovely toastiness, that little bit of pastry um, that you expect of these, you know, traditional method Chardonnay based wines. And it is a reserver, so it has been aged for at least 24 months, we think. We learned this today and we've forgotten already. It might be 18. Hello, MW student. Yes, need to re- revise that. Um, but it's certainly aged for a lot longer than the, than the nine months which 90% of Carver is aged for. I did learn that today and I've remembered that fact. 
So these aged uh, covers are much more unusual, but they're still really good value. This will cost about $27, $28. And I think an equivalent champagne would be 40 to 45 Well, exactly. And that's why I think it's so important that people, that this style of wine gets more recognition. It is a incredible value. I mean, even tasting the Cordon Negro, which is $10 a bottle, uh, it's it definitely has an audience. You know, it, it's a little bit more fresh and fruity, uh, something that's not very complex, but something that's completely enjoyable. And you get it for $10 a bottle. Well, Cava's got to get its message out. And um, one thing that Eva did tell us today is that Frisionette have never really pushed the Cava aspect of their brand. It's more about them as a brand. And that's been a problem. If one of your biggest producers kind of disassociates themselves a little bit from Cava, it's hard to uh, really market them worldwide. But hopefully now there's more of a coordinated image brand plan so that people do recognize these wines and understand different prices, different levels, different styles. So choose Cava for your next meal or celebration. Will do, Katie. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next week for another Wind Up. Back in your feeds on Wednesday. And we've discussed famous wine legends, um, tariffs, wine drinking habits, Cava. Just a typical episode of Wind Up Weekly. And we invite you to please rate and review us. Uh, it helps us uh, to be found by other wine lovers and professionals like you. Cheerio.